You will when I move. Is that what you mean, the art? That's, oh yeah, okay, I got you. Yeah, but, okay, that's fine. Well, this is uh, Sunday morning, June 7th. Uh, I think we're all very heavy-hearted about what's going on in our nation. We just long to see the shalom of God be all over the land. And we're heartbroken. So I, I wish I could say I'm upbeat this morning. I'm not. I wish I could say I had an upbeat lesson for you this morning. It isn't. <laughs> it's, it's a very heavy message because, <coughs> excuse me, it's about sin. So is the sermon. But this is what the Lord has providentially ordained for us. So, let me pray for us and then we'll uh, return to our handout, point 15. If you need to access it, it is on the webpage. It's called Temptation. Let me pray for us. Lord, how we look to you. We are desperate people in trying times with a sovereign and faithful God. We need you so much, more than we know. We cry out to you this morning for our land, how your kingdom would come and bring healing, bring hope. Oh, bring restoration. Bring the shalom of God, how we long for it, Lord. Pour out mercy on so many hurting individuals. Pour out mercy. And use your churches, Lord, as light, as a place of healing, hope. Use your churches to bring to bear the values, priorities, glories of the kingdom of God into a needy world. Continue to protect our brothers and sisters at Wallace from COVID. Bring healing, bring help, restoration, meet needs abundantly. And so, Lord, as we now turn to the scriptures, you're our teacher, Holy Spirit. And so do in our hearts and minds what is needful and what would please our Father, what would help us and shepherd us. In Jesus' name, amen. So don't forget to mute, mute yourself on your little device there. We're on the handout on page 15, but would do well to read our text again. Uh, the text at the top of the handout is from 1 Corinthians 10. The text actually starts at 6. I think I'm going to go back and read verse 1 through 14 because we're going to see a reference in the first six verses to the, the rock that followed them, which is Christ. And I want, to, I want us to call this attention to that. So let me start our text with uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 10, beginning at verse 1. Paul writing to the Corinthians, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, 
that we might not desire evil as they did. Don't be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written, that people sat down to eat and drink, rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example. They were written down for our instruction, on whom the ends of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee idolatry. Let's go to point 15 in the outline. Last week we ended with a couple of case studies of what happens when sinful desires are left unchecked. There's the warning about desiring riches. With unchecked zeal, it will plunge, uh, plunge men and women into ruin and destruction. And then Demas is a case study. At one point, uh, Paul commends him in Colossians 4 as a partner. Then we, then we learn of him in 2 Timothy 4, Paul's last epistle, that he, in love with this present world, deserted him and gone to Thessalonica. We made the point that Demas, in all likelihood, didn't wake up one morning the night before having given thanks to God for his partnership with Paul, woke up one morning in love with the world. There's a, a progressive succession series of many decisions from which we slip away from the Lord and let sin have a greater and greater grip in our hearts. So here's point 15 when we're learning about temptation. Temptation puts Christ to the test. That's what Paul writes in verse 9. What's he referring to? The reference in all likelihood is to Numbers 21, verse 5, where we read, And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no food and no water. We loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. They bit the people so that many people of Israel died. This is terrifying. This is so sobering. An immediate judgment of God on their faithlessness. Why does Paul say this temptation put Christ to the test? Well, earlier in the text, he tells us that Christ was the rock that followed them, the source of all the blessings of Israel in the wilderness, was Christ. I mean, think of the connections. God supernaturally gave his people food through the manna. Jesus connected himself in John 6 to that manna, saying, I'm the bread of life. Whenever they needed water, water gushed out of a place. We know that Jesus is the spring of everlasting, the uh, spring of the water of life. So it shouldn't surprise us that Jesus is there loving his people, providing, protecting, being the source. And the test is then what? It's doubting the goodness of God. 
doubting that he will provide, doubting that he's God. There's some irony, isn't there? When the people complain, they say, there's no food and no water. And then the next thing they say is, we loathe this worthless food. Well, just a second. <laughs> there is food. It's just not the food you want. <laughs> God is amply supplying for his people. And look, let's, let's just stop and say, were we in their shoes? I, I know I. I would be tempted to complain. When dinner's not ready on time, I might grumble. When I'm thirsty, I don't have immediate access to quenching my thirst. I might grumble. Well, these people are wandering in a wilderness, and there was a test from God. He let them sometimes come right to the edge of thirst and hunger pangs. Those are very painful things. Humanly, we're driven by these pangs. We need these things. So sometimes it got really desperate till God came through and supplied the needs of his people. That's because he's God. He's good. He's powerful. He's able to supply what his people need. But sometimes we get in places where we doubt that because according to appearances, it doesn't look like God is going to come through. This calls down a very severe judgment. Uh, it's just terrifying, isn't it? It's so sobering. These snakes that come and bite the people, they die. And of course, as they look to the bronze snake that's made, they live. That is looking to Christ. It is us looking to the cross to be delivered from our own grumbling and our own sin. So let's ask this question next. You can see on the handout. Why? What, what was at the heart of, uh, of, of this sin? We have a commentary on this in Hebrews, the end of three and the beginning of four. Hebrews 3.18 raises the question, and to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? But to those who were disobedient. Entering his rest is a picture of coming to the promised land. The writer of Hebrews shows that the promised land is simply emblematic of our final rest in glory, the renewed heavens and the new earth. So all the people of God are always sojourning. They're always looking to a final rest. We have an initial rest in Jesus, arresting from our labors, arresting from uh, trying to be for God what he demands. We have all of that in Jesus. He's our rest, but we're still sojourning, waiting for the final consummation of the, that ultimate rest in the presence of God in glory with a renewed earth. That promised land signaled that. So whenever you're reading in the Bible, you see God's commitment to the land. You see God's promise of what the land is going to be like if they're obedient. When you read that, think, oh, we have something infinitely better. The renewed earth, the renewed cosmos in which there'll be uh, nothing but righteousness and abundant, perfect, flawless, sinless provision. So the writer of Hebrews says this, And to whom did he swear they would not enter his rest, but those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief, right? We're saved by faith. Unbelief is the thing that keeps us from inheriting the promises of God. And then we have this further comment in Hebrews 4.2. For good news came to us, he's thinking the gospel in Jesus Christ, just as to them, the Israelites didn't hear the name Jesus Christ, but nonetheless it was good news, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. One translation, I think the NASB says, the message did not meet with faith in their hearts. Either way, the idea seems to be the same. So here's my little diagram here on the board. It's worth asking the question, 
what was the message given to the Old Testament saints in the wilderness? Well, the heart of the covenant is, I will be your God. An implicit, explicit in God's promise to be our God is that he will both deliver us and provide for us. God saved his people Israel out of bondage in Egypt. He delivered them. He saved them. This is the promise. God promises to save us through the work of Jesus Christ. We trust a promise. We look to God as the God who saves. Salvation is of the Lord. That's the message of the Bible. It's not ultimately a handbook for how to give a, live a good life. The message of the Bible is human beings are in desperate need of a salvation outside of themselves. That salvation comes from God, is located in God, and is given to us as a gift of grace in Jesus. So the message to Israel is, I will be your God, I will deliver you, and I will provide for you. And that message, uh, the writer of Hebrews is saying, was not met in their hearts by faith. Here's the message, and, and you know people like this. You know people who have been around the Christian gospel perhaps for decades. And the message stays out there, the message of Christ stays out there, what is lacking is the supernaturally wrought grace in our hearts of the ability to believe it. What a gift of God. I mean, this is the greatest miracle in all of life. It is the Holy Spirit-given ability, gift, inclination, desire to believe the message. God gives it. If you like it, if you, if you uh, can say to yourself right now, I don't think I believe the gospel yet, the Holy Spirit will create that in you. Just ask. That is a prayer that is always answered in the economy of God. So looking at the handout, therefore, at the heart of sin is unbelief and pride. They're saying to God, we know better how to provide for ourselves. We know better what it means to be human. We're going to take matters into our own hands. And God swiftly, in that instance, judges that, thank God, I wasn't judged earlier in my life for thinking that way. God had every right to do that, but my life is a testimony of his mercy, his patience, his kindness, his overlooking my sins. I love the way Paul puts it in his own testimony in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 1. God overlooked my ignorance. God overlooked my foolishness, and in you know, his perfect time brought me to himself. So if you name the name of Christ today, and there was a time you were not a believer in Jesus, Thank him for his mercy and patience enduring with you through that time of grumbling and thinking you knew better than God. <laughs> and then he brought you to faith. If you've never known a time when you didn't know Christ, I suspect there's some covenant children tuning in with us this morning. Thank God that in his mercy and grace, he caused you to be born into a home where mom and dad always taught you about Jesus. That's the way it should be in God's economy. Thank the Lord for, that, for your folks, for God's mercy giving you into a believing home. So, <clears throat> sin is, the heart of sin is unbelief and pride, the, the belief that God himself is insufficient and there's no pleasure in obedience, no virtue in obedience. This I'm calling, based on the quote from Deuteronomy 29, is rottenness in the roots. Every sin springs from a heart that is under, that is that is choosing my way, not God's way. That's unbelief. My way better than God's? That's pride. That's arrogance. That's haughtiness, as we're going to see as we tease out from some of these lists of sins. 
So let's look at this, again, terrifying passage in Deuteronomy 29.18. Beware lest Moses, warning, beware lest there be among you a man or a woman or a clan or a tribe whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. So Israel's delivered from Egypt. We do know that they brought with them some of the idols that were in Egypt. We do know that some Egyptians came with them. They had a blessed responsibility to love those people, share the gospel with those people, disciple those people, see those people become a part of the kingdom of God. But Israel came into a land surrounded by nations, and those nations had gods, and it was tempting for the Israelites to be interested in those gods. The idea behind idols was what they did for you. An idol had a certain power. And so you bow down to the God of the rain, the God of the sun, the God of the harvest, the God of sexuality, because of the power and the benefit that you thought that that God brought to you. So it's no mistake that God tells us he is the God who provides Jehovah Jireh. He's the source of our blessings. And you read in the Psalms, a number of different Psalms say, their gods have mouths, but they cannot speak, eyes, but they cannot see, ears, but they cannot hear. Those who make them will be like them. You know those songs that, that I can't tell you the numbers off the top of my head. But the, the living God sees, the living God hears, the living God speaks, the living God is the source of all of our blessings. So Moses is warning them, you're going to be tempted to go after these false gods and it, it would do well for you and me to stop and say, what are the false gods of the culture that I'm in? We might not see, uh, I've been on a missions trip to a country where driving down a road, the missionary I was with pointed to little idols you could see the idols in a little tent right beside the road. It broke his heart. It should break our hearts. We don't necessarily have those in our culture, but what are the idols that we would be tempted to follow after? That's something you need to know about your heart. The idols of materialism, the idols of sensuality, the idols of self-indulgence, all these different kinds of things. Okay, <clears throat> back to Deuteronomy 29. He says, Beware lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. That was probably an apt analogy because in the wilderness where they were wandering, there were probably some trees that were healthy trees and no doubt there were bushes and trees that, were, that bore poisonous fruit. Why? Because of what was down ultimately in the roots. It says, look at yourself, be careful, beware, <clears throat> that among you there's a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. And here's what that looks like in, 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 fat, in function or practice. One who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, what's the sworn covenant? I will be your God. I will deliver you. I will provide for you. In response, you owe me worship and obedience and trust. Lord, I can't pull that off. Okay, come Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit and give me the ability to worship, to trust, and to obey. He'll give everything he demands. That's the beauty of our God. <laughs> what he demands, he supplies. So he says, one who, when he hears the words of this covenant, this sworn covenant, God swears that he'll be this. He promises. He can promise by no one higher than himself, the writer of Hebrews says. Blesses himself in his heart. Blesses himself. When you hear the words of the covenant, you should bless God. The sign of the covenant, the Lord's Supper, is the Eucharisto, it's the thanksgiving. We bless God for his salvation. We partake thanking God, blessing God, 
knowing it wasn't our body, it wasn't our blood that brought our salvation, it was Christ. So here's the person who hears the words of the covenant, blesses himself in his heart saying, I shall be safe though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. So question, is that a sin of ignorance or a sin of presumption? Looks to me like audacious presumption. This is the person who hears the covenant and says in his heart, I can transgress the covenant and still be safe. I can find life. I can find happiness. I can find purpose. I can find significance. I can find security. Though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart, this person is aware of the stubbornness of their heart. We're going to see in the sermon today that David prays in Psalm 19, keep me back from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. That is the height of presumption. I can disobey God and still be safe. This is someone who knows the covenant. So, it, you know, that just causes us to look at our hearts and help one another. What, what, what remaining vestiges of sin deceive us into thinking we can break God's law and not break ourselves. So Moses goes on to say, this will lead to the sweeping of way and moist and dry alike. The Lord will not be willing to forgive him, but rather the anger of the Lord and his jealousy will smoke against that man and the curses written in this book will settle upon him and the Lord will blot out his name from under heaven. That's just terrifying. It's very heavy. Um, does God have a right to do this with our disobedience? Of course he does. And so, Holy Spirit creating me a greater fear of the Lord, a, a, a fear of disappointing Him, a, 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 an appetite for pleasing Him, a greater desire to revere Him, to honor Him, to trust Him. Beg the Spirit of God to create these in your heart, and He will. And He, as a rule, He uses the Word of God to create these things in us. It's, it's this prayer, save me from myself. God will answer that prayer. Uh, I've got a, a quote in here from Jesus in Matthew 7, which also looks at this idea of fruits and roots. Jesus said, every healthy tree bears good fruit. The diseased tree bears bad fruit. The healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can the diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down, thrown into the, thrown into the fire. Thus you'll recognize them by their fruits. So, look at the fruits in your life. We have the fruit of the Spirit. They're, they're representative, not exhaustive. Uh, where I'm missing those, what's going on in my heart that I'm saying yes to Mike and no to God? Ask the Spirit of God to come and revive and put you in your right mind. They're His fruits. He's with us in this battle. I want to finish this handout by looking at some representative lists of sins that God gives us in the Bible. There's actually a lot of them. Uh, again, I just want to say it's, it's, it's kind of depressing to look at all these. Maybe we shouldn't feel this way because when you ask the question, why does God lay out all these different kinds of sins? The answer is because he loves us. He wants to show you what is bad for you. He wants to show you what hurts you. And sin is odious to him. And he wants us to know that because the ultimate thing he is looking for in us, his redeemed people, is a reflection back to him of the glory of his own character. 
Our obedience, our hatred of sin, our love of righteousness, our obedience should ultimately be motivated for God's glory. Yes, it's good for us. Yes, it helps you. You get those incentives in the Bible. But the ultimate reason is when we conform ourselves to God's character, God is satisfied seeing in us the reflection of his own righteousness. And I simply want to, I want to develop a greater appetite for that. I want the Holy Spirit to weaken my, the still indwelling appetite for my own glory and create a greater glory for God's. So here's some representative sins. The first obvious one is the Ten Commandments. They appear for us in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. Uh, what's the summary of the Ten Commandments? Love God, love neighbor. Sometime, get a hold of the larger catechism of the Westminster Confession of Faith. That, that's the doctrinal standard of our denomination. And the, the Westminster theologians understood that every commandment enjoins something positively for you to do as well as warns against something you shouldn't do. So every commandment has two sides. Every commandment requires this kind of thinking and behavior, and it forbids this kind of thinking and behavior. Uh, it's stunning that the breadth that the Westminster divines created as they studied the Ten Commandments. David, both in Psalms 51 and Psalm 32, when he reflects on disobedience, you know, he wrote those psalms as meditations on his sin with Bathsheba that we think we talked about last week. He uses the same three words at the beginning of both psalms to describe his frailty, his foibles, his sin, and he uses the word transgression, sin, and iniquity. Just quickly, I'll tell you what those mean. Transgression means overstepping the bounds. So, if you remember back to our study on uh, Proverbs, the path of life. This is the place where you walk and you find enjoyment of God, you find what it means to be most human. You can never hurt your soul on the path of life. If you step over that path, that's where the danger is. Uh, to use a sports analogy, if you step out of bounds, play's over, you're done. Uh, you might think of the Christian life as walking a narrow path along a cliff, the edge of the Grand Canyon. Transgression is stepping off. Ah! Would that we feared more our sinning is like falling into the Grand Canyon. So that's transgression, overstepping the bounds. The word sin means missing the mark. So think of a target for an archer. The archer is shooting for the bullseye. Sin is missing the bullseye. So often in our attitudes, our behaviors, our words, we're drawing back the bow and we're, we're often not even close to the target. But sin is missing the mark. God sets in his word the beauty of holiness. He describes it for us. He spells it out for us. And when we fail to hit that, we're missing the mark. The third word is, is iniquity. And that refers to sin as pollution in the heart. So anytime I'm craving me over God, it's creating toxic waste in my soul. And you know, the gospel is that Jesus somehow was smothered under, drowned in 
the toxic waste of all of the sins of his people on the cross. Just, it's hard to imagine. Not to mention the wrath, the just judgment of God for those sins, born in his body on the cross. And it is contemplating the suffering of Jesus that we are moved to desire less our sins and to live more for him. We'll see at the end of today's sermon, we run the race of faith looking to Christ, looking to Christ, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. So, list of sins. The first obvious is the Ten Commandments. We find another list in Proverbs 6.16. And these are explicitly things that the Lord hates. So let's just stop and ask, does God have a right to hate something? If he's God, he does. And when the scripture says God hates something, we have to take the, the, as a template the next things that are listed, lay them over our lives. My words, my actions, my thoughts, the things I'm not doing that I might. So lay that template over my life and let these things scrutinize me. Let them examine me. Let them probe me. There's six things the Lord hates. Seven, it's just a literary device to get to the number seven, that are an abomination to him. An abomination. Again, sorry, this is a very heavy teaching this morning. But it is for our good that he tells us. It's for our good. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. Again, as much as we know the Bible, this list would be representative, not exhaustive. What I mean by that is, this isn't the only thing the Lord hates, because we're going to discover other lists that tell you other things. This is representative of things that what? That mark human life, though not the way it's supposed to be. We were created for righteousness and holiness in thought, word, and need. So the reason the Lord hates these is this isn't the way it's supposed to be. These defame his image in us. So if he's looking to see reflected in our character, our words, our thoughts, everything that we do and don't do, if he's looking to see himself reflected, sin is a blotch on that. It, it's painting over it with an opaque color. So God isn't seeing reflected what brings joy to us heart, and that is his image reflected in, in us. These things he hates because they're bad for us. And a lot of these are relational. They destroy relationships. You may remember that in my sermon last week, I said that God is looking on the earth to see manifested among his people something of the relational unity that exists in the Godhead. For eternity and into eternity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are delighting in each other, gushing with love and affection over each other, perfect unity. God longs to see that reflected on the earth. Adam and Eve had that before the fall. When they fell, they lost that. Notice they're immediately alienated, not just from God, but from each other in the history of the world as human beings, alienated from each other. And the question is, what can bring desperate parties back together? Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, Christ made peace between Jew and Gentile through the blood of his cross. If you're at odds with somebody, it, it can only be brought back together through the work of Jesus. 
You could also say, what does the Lord love? And look at each of these things and say the opposite. You're going to find out what the Lord loves. Okay, how about into the New Testament? What defiles a person? Matthew 15, 18, Jesus said, he was talking to people who were much more concerned with how clean their dishes were than how clean their hearts were. They basically made their religion all about external trappings and cleanliness. And it broke Jesus' heart. Because you can have clean religion all around you, but as he said, you're a whitewashed tomb. Deep in your heart, there's death and decay and wretchedness. And God wants us to see that. So we'll flee to him for life, for forgiveness, for righteousness. Jesus said, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. This is what defiles a person. So, stop and listen to how you speak. Words are here, but what's down in my heart that's producing those kinds of words? What's motivating me? What rottenness here is producing this? So don't, yeah, so words themselves aren't necessarily sinful. Some are. But Jesus is saying, go down to the source. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, faultless, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anybody. Now let me point out that the word there, sexual immorality, is the Greek word porneia, from which we get pornography. In that ancient culture, porneia was very broad. It really referred to any kind of sexual perversion. So look then at his list and see if you don't see the Ten Commandments. Out of his heart come evil thoughts, murder, Sixth Commandment, adultery, sexual immorality, Seventh Commandment, theft, Eighth Commandment, false witness and slander, Ninth Commandment. So, in a sense, Jesus is just teasing out functionally in my life where I'm violating these commandments with these kinds of things. Here's another list from Romans chapter 1. Sorry, this is very heavy. I realize this is just... Ah. When the glory of God is exchanged for a lie, what happens? So think about it. Can my life, designed to live by God, for God, according to the truth of God, can I live a life denying that fact and not sin? Of course not. So Paul summarizes this whole dynamic at the end of Romans 1, Romans 1, 28. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, that is a conscious refusal to acknowledge God. God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, they are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. These are all specific manifestations of a failure to love God and love neighbor. You could say a lot of these things reveal a heart that is, that is determined to treat others as objects 
and as vehicles to fulfill our own agenda. All of the, uh, many of these things create an abuse of words. God loves words. God created everything in the universe by his word. Jesus is upholding every molecule in the universe, we're told in Hebrews 1, by the word of his power. Words are incredibly important. We live in a time where we need to be exceedingly careful how we speak, what words we choose. What you have here is what I would just call unbridled self-expression or God's good gifts gone wild. Sexuality, a good gift. Speaking, a good gift. Relationships, a good gift. Money, a good gift. Lots of gifts. The truth, a good gift. These things out of a rotten heart are twisting the gifts, using them not for God's glory, but for some other means. Unbridled self-expression, a repudiation of God's ways for man's self-indulgence. So I've just got to look at my heart and say, where might I be tempted by these things? We can move on to another one. Unless you're thoroughly depressed, in which case, well, no. This, God tells us for our good. What characterizes the darkness? Romans 13, 13. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality, that's porneia, and sensuality, now having studied the word in the Greek, it, that doesn't really necessarily have just a sexual con, uh, uh, reference as much as unbridled, uncensored living. Unbridled living. So it's sort of indulging all the senses and however I want to. I'm not exactly sure what that looked like in Paul's culture, but you can be sure he witnessed it in Corinth and many of the cities that he went to. He says, let's walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies, drunkenness, not in sexual immorality, sensuality, quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. There is a way to fight this thing, and that is putting on Christ. We'll hear a little bit more about that in today's sermon, and uh, all of next week's sermon is, is devoted to uh, how we find uh, the portrait of a, of a man struggling with sin successfully from Psalm 119. I'm going to got time for one more, maybe. What marks walking in the flesh? 2 Corinthians 12, I fear that perhaps when I come I may find you not as I wish. How does Paul want to find the Corinthians? Getting along, seeking the Lord, living righteously, loving their neighbors, using their resources for God's glory. That's how he wants to find them. And that you may find me not as I wish. Meaning when he gets there and he begins to call out sin, he's not going to be happy. We'd rather have Paul show up all happy. I think that's what he's saying that perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, disorder. Who likes those things? Who wants those? Who wants those in their house? Who wants those at their place of business? Who wants these things marking any relationship in their life? None of us do. Paul doesn't want it for us, for the Corinthians. God doesn't want it for us. He says, I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they practiced. In view of practicing these things,
Paul expects to find repentance. You fall into these sins, you repent. You find these things marking your life, you flee from them, and you repent. The longer you delay repentance, the stronger us, uh, the more a stronghold they give you over, uh, they create over your heart. But we always repent with confidence. Christ, grace is greater than our sin. Christ forgives us. Christ cleanses the filthy. Christ is always there to receive with open hands those who come to him who are weary and need rest. Praise the Lord. I think that's a good note to end on. Uh, thanks for bearing with a not necessarily upbeat lesson this morning, but, but God tells us because he loves us. And uh, if these help us understand how awful sin is for us, for each other, and for God, then that's good. Let, let's pray together. We are in this uh, incess incessant conflict with sin, Lord. We wouldn't be in it but for your grace. This is the mark of a circumcised heart. We're no longer at peace with sin and at war with God. We are through the spoils of Jesus Christ, at peace with God, and consequently at war with sin. So this is a good thing to study. This is a needful, important thing to know how sin seeks to express itself in word, deed, and thought. Thank you for your word. Thank you that you want to show us, as a good parent, what's bad for us. Thank you for your Spirit's work, convicting, persuading, convincing, and showing us Jesus, and causing our hearts to rest in his grace. Give my precious brothers and sisters at Wallace now worshipful hearts to engage with you, seek you, honor you with their whole hearts, feed them with the word of God, hear their praises, transform them by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.